It's the 24th of March, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, myositis and cancer, clinical associations with SSA antibodies and a biomarker for the ILD associated with scleroderma. Really? But I'm going to start with my pet project, one of my favorite topics, and that is um, psoriatic arthritis sine psoriasis. PSA sine, meaning without psoriasis, really unique. How can you have psoriatic arthritis and no psoriasis, you say? Yes, it's possible. It's more common in kids than it is in adults. This particular study was an adult study, and a collection of 29 patients, 16 women, 13 men, mean age 45 years. They had PSA for six years, and half of them had a first-degree relative with psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis. How did they present, you ask? Well, they didn't have psoriasis, but they did have DIP, DIP arthritis in two-thirds, about one-third with polyarticular disease, another one-third with oligoarticular disease, um, 25% had axial disease. Start adding those up. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap there, don't you think? But they did find nail abnormalities in 89%, enthesitis and dactylitis in about 60%. Again, this is a unique subset. Um, I think they're kind of hard to treat. They didn't go into the treatment or their responses, but I do think we see people like this. And just because you don't have psoriasis doesn't mean you shouldn't be looking at the nails or looking for enthesitis and dactylitis. A recent study from China looked at the survival of patients starting on apremilast. I think maybe drug survival might be the best measure of overall efficacy and safety of a particular drug. The bad news is that in a lot of the psoriasis trials, the, the survival, the durability of some of our newer drugs, the, you know, the new biologics, the 17, 23s, 12, 23 inhibitors, etc., not that good. You know, when you look out beyond um, one year or two years, only like a third are taking drugs. Well, I looked at this with a primalast in 281 patients who had psoriasis. They all had psoriasis, and about a quarter of them had psoriatic arthritis. The one-year survival was 54%. Not bad, but it fell off after two years. It was 41% at three years, and four years it was 30% roughly. So that's kind of on par with many of the biologics that we've seen. How do these people stop their drug? Well, half of them did have adverse events, but discontinuations were mostly for lack of efficacy in 27% and or adverse events in 12%. So that's the survival statistics on Aprimolast, a drug very popular in dermatology, maybe a little less so in rheumatology. I found a very interesting study that looked at a, it was a biomarker search basically for ILD associations. And they looked at 259 patients with scleroderma associated ILD. They looked at another 180 who had scleroderma but no ILD. They looked at 172 idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis patients and 30 controls. When they did all their machinations and, and analyses, they came up with a uh, a, a triad of three biomarkers that, if present, gave you a 12.7-fold increased risk of having scleroderma-associated ILD. The odds ratio was 12.7, and that was independent of age, sex, smoking, and PFT abnormalities. What were these three biomarkers? Number one, SPD, surface 
surfactant protein D. Number two, CA153, also called MUC1. That's been in the news a lot. And then ICAM1, the point being that these three biomarkers were helpful in identifying patients with really a very bad outcome in scleroderma. Um, I like this research. Uh, it gives us further insights. Uh, those are three biomarkers that are not generally available, but we need research like this to better subset our patients to know maybe who we should be treating more aggressively or maybe even developing clinical trials for patients like this. Another open-label trial of guselcamab now looks at its utility in hydradenitis suppurativa. Uh, as you know, uh, adalimumab is approved for hydradenitis suppurativa, but there are other studies going on with the other drugs, including IL-17 inhibitors. This is an IL-23 inhibitor with guselcamab in 20 patients with moderate to severe hydradenitis, and they were looking for a, um, a hydradenitis score uh, at week 16 as the primary endpoint. Um, and in this, in this study, they had 65% had a good response at week 16. But there are other studies, um, including a larger phase 2b study called the NOVA trial that showed guselcomab only had like 45 to 51% responses that were better than, but not a lot better than a 39% placebo response. The point of this trial and the one that I mentioned in addition suggests that gaselcomab might be an option for hydradinus suppurativa, but it may only work at a subset of those difficult-to-treat patients. The JAMA had a recent article uh, comparing steroid injection versus night splinting in patients with chronic uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. This is a UK national um, health service trial that basically found no advantage to of one over the other, meaning they had equal outcomes. The study was called the INSTINCT, with a CTS on the end, trial, um, 234 patients, and they looked at two-year out, two outcomes, and they both were similar in a carpal tunnel primary endpoint outcome measure that I don't want to go into here, but it was 71% in the steroid arm, 70, 73% steroid arm, 71% in the night splinting arm. But they did show that fewer night splinting patients went on to need surgery. That was 16% versus 22%, or that needed referral, 20% versus 28%. So maybe a slight edge for the non-interventional, more observational um, and conservative management with night splinting. A uh, recent retrospective claims analysis looked at patients with PMR and GCA trying to find out what's the incidence of pneumocystis, that would be PJP, in, uh, with these two different diagnoses. And basically, they found zero. Uh, I guess they were looking at this because steroids up the risk of getting PJP. But you need to be on high doses of steroids like you would see in GCA, not necessarily like what you would see in PMR. But honestly, in the GCA, they had like one case, I think. And in PMR, they had almost no cases. Uh, the rates were incredibly low. The point being of this analysis that you don't need PJP prophylaxis when you're using steroids for either PMR or for PJP. Uh, there are other instances where you do need um, um, PJP prophylaxis with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and that's basically uh, other serious, um, you know, ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, high-dose steroids, and rituximab. Rituximab, any indication, 
high risk of PJP, and I'd recommend prophylaxis in those patients. But this study for PMR and GCA, no way, don't worry about it, Ray. Um, a long-term survival analysis of patients with idiopathic inflammatory myopathies looked at a large number of patients and showed that the five and 10-year survival was 89 and 74%. But it started to fall off after 15, 20, and 25, going down to 67, 62, 43% at 25 years. Now, consider that the average onset age here is in the late 30s, early 40s, 25 years. Is that much longer than they were supposed to live? Hard to know. But the predictors of mortality in this study were, as you might have guessed, old age. Guess what? You're closer to your, um, your end-of-life statistic but also having cardiac involvement or the occurrence of serious infections increase the um, odds of mortality almost 2.3 fold higher. Another study looked at cancer detection in inflammatory myositis, looking at um, 1,000 patients uh, looking at chest CTs with a 0.9% yield on chest CT. Um, and then if you do it other ways, you know the highest you were going to get up to is 1.8%. The risk of a cancer with myositis was highest with dermatomyositis and in patients who were TIF1 gamma antibody positive. It turns out that the, you know, doing cancer testing or cancer screening with chest CTs had a very low yield below the age of 40 um, and had a high false positive rate in patients with antisynthetase syndrome because they can get lung disease too. Uh, and also in necrotizing, necrotizing myositis patients. The point being that I don't do routine chest CTs because you have a diagnosis of polymyositis, dermatomyositis. I do it in high-risk patients. Those are older patients, dermatomyositis, male more so than female. And then if you've got the antibodies associated with this, including not just TIF1 gamma, but NXP2 antibodies, those might be reasonable indications for further screening. Uh, recent analysis of pregnancy and fetal outcomes in women pregnant with SSA or, uh, as you know, uh, Rho antibodies. Here's what they found in 1,675 women. 4% uh, terminated their pregnancy early. 5% spontaneous uh, um, abortions. 26% preterm labor and 50% needed C-sections. The fetal outcomes um, uh, to mothers who were SSA positive, 4% perinatal death, 3% growth retardation, 7 to 12% heart block recurrence, and 19% were born with the cutaneous neonatal lupus syndrome. These are reference numbers. I'm sure you need them when you're thinking about this issue. In studies where you're going to use steroids in, not studies, in, in in situations where you're going to use steroids in RA, where would you do that? Well, you'd mostly do it, as some of the guidelines suggest, as bridging therapies. Newly diagnosed, you've got to start them on a DMARD, biologic targeted synthetic. You want to give them some coverage with the early use of steroids that you can ultimately wean off. This became one of the subjects of big subjects behind the ULAR guidelines from last year, 2022. Dr. Smolin, when he did this presentation, spent a lot of time basically saying we all do it, but we all worry about not getting off the steroids. But the research says that we really do get off the steroids when we use bridging, bridging therapy. And that's what this particular report was about. It's the analysis of the literature on this subject. So when you use bridging corticosteroids when starting a DMARD, 
the odds of being on the glucocorticoids after a one month beyond when you were supposed to have stopped and weaned off was only 18%. If you looked out at um, being on steroids 6 to 18 months after the time that you were supposed to have stopped, again, bridging means that you're going to use bridging steroids for a period, two, three, four months, and then and you're going to have a, a wean off of that. But they would say that the odds um, is still it's only 7%, six to eight months. That means six to eight months after you use bridging steroids, the vast majority, 93%, are have stopped the steroids. This is encouraging for those of you who use bridging corticosteroid therapy. Who did, who did have a hard time getting off? Those who had higher initial doses of steroids in their bridging scheme, and then obviously um, a longer bridging period were associated with not so much success and also um, a higher total cumulative uh, exposure to glucocorticoids. A 10-year study looked at 390 RA patients and looked at the associations um, with methotrexate-associated gastrointestinal symptoms. This is an odd twist on this phenomenon. We know that methotrexate GI symptoms are not uncommon at all. And in their study, 390 patients, 41% had GI symptoms. But what they noticed was in that 41%, they looked to see how many of those people had um, H. pylori infection. And they showed that it was significantly higher. A three, what was it? Actually, they didn't give a number, but it was significantly higher uh, was the risk of having H. pylori. Now, there's no association between H. pylori and methotrexate-associated GI toxicity. But then again, this study would say maybe there is. But they also went on to say that if you had methotrexate-associated GI symptoms, not surprisingly, a threefold higher risk of then being transferred over to biologic therapy. So it's a new way of looking at a common problem of gastrointestinal side effects. Um, should you look for H. pylori? Maybe not a bad idea. Should you jump to biologics? Probably not. But you need to think about what you're going to do in that scenario. Um, we had a, a, a publication this past week about tofacitinib and its association with the risk of interstitial lung disease. This was a claims data analysis over 28,000 patients looking at crude rates of, of interstitial lung disease in RA patients, and the rates are reported as events per 1,000 patient years. And for common biologics, uh, the numbers are adalimumab 3.4, Abitacep 4.5, tocilizumab 5, rituximab 6.1 or 6.15, and that's per 1,000 patient years. Tofacitinib, the number was 1.47. What? Really significantly lower. Now, is that, you know, a selection bias um, and when these drugs are being used? Again, this is claims analysis. But after you're making multiple adjustments, they basically showed that there was this almost um, 70%, 65 to 70% reduction in rates of ILD compared to a comparator drug. In this case, they chose adalimumab. So uh, I'd like to see more research on this. You know, the early days when the TNF inhibitors came out, they researched whether or not TNF inhibitors lowered the risk of ILD. And despite a number of early interesting uncontrolled reports looking like it might, but might benefit lung disease, it didn't pan out. Um, but I think this kind of data, this kind of analysis says maybe you should. 
our last report is about the use of anaphrolimab. I think we mentioned this in the past, being used in patients with discoid lupus. A recent issue of JAMA Dermatology describes 10 patients who uh, were from the Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, who were treated with anaphrolimab for refractory DLE. Uh, eight patients had received at least two months of therapy. They were about 40 years of age. Clinical responses were seen in all, and that was clinical responses were measured using the um, cutaneous lupus activity score called Classy, Classy A, then Classy B, Classy D. But the Classy A score in these patients at two months improved 65%. And again, these were felt to be refractory. Um, so that's encouraging data. We'd like to see control trials and maybe even an indication for that in the future. That's it for this week on Room Now. Uh, make sure you um, click on Ask Kush Anything if you want to have your case or question read out loud on this next pod- podcast. In the upcoming weeks, we're going to roll out a lot of the replay um, videos and podcasts of our Room Now Live program that happened last week in Dallas. Tremendous success, uh, really fabulous lectures. I think you're going to like seeing this in the next few months. Watch out for that. Have a good week. Take care.